Good afternoon, and welcome to Outer Cape News on WOMR. My name is Matthew Dunn. This is your update on what's happening on the Outer and Lower Cape, drawing on stories reported in the pages of the Provincetown Independent, the Cape Cod Chronicle, and the Cape Cod Times. In this week's edition, we've got stories that have developed over the last several weeks since the last edition of Outer Cape News, including the story of a fire on Commercial Street in Provincetown, and Wellfleet's decision to go ahead with dredging in Wellfleet Harbor. And Ira Wood is here with a matter of opinion. He's obsessed, depressed, and lacking finesse. The special town meeting scheduled in Truro for Tuesday, November 28th, was again continued to a later date after more voters showed up at Truro Central School than the venue could safely accommodate. Hundreds of people were still lined up outside the school waiting to check in more than 20 minutes after the meeting was scheduled to start. The crowd overflowed the school gym, and dozens more sat in overflow rooms set up in the cafeteria and library, as town moderator Paul Wisotsky made the announcement that the meeting would be put off, rather than having some voters excluded from participating. It's estimated that around 700 people showed up at the school, which could only hold 523. The continuance marks the fourth time the special town meeting has been rescheduled this year. After a motion to move the meeting to February was voted down, a motion was approved to move the meeting to May 4th at the Truro Central School Field. The special town meeting will now be held on the same date as the annual spring town meeting. The earlier meetings had been continued due to a series of voter registration challenges filed with the town and the subsequent hearings to resolve those disputes. In the end, 23 of the originally challenged 66 individuals removed themselves from the voter roll, and 12 were removed by the registrars. Now the debates over development at the Walsh property, a new DPW building, and the town's local comprehensive plan will be put off for more than five months. The long wait was predicated in part on the fact that the meeting will need to be held outdoors because there is no place in town large enough to hold the expected crowd. With that in mind, the select board voted unanimously this week to pursue a special act known as a governor's bill that would give the town flexibility to hold the town meeting elsewhere that provides for increased capacity. Town manager Darren Tangeman said that the town needs to have options in the winter months to be able to accommodate more voters than the school can hold. Board member Sue Arison said that holding the meeting outside of Truro should be a last resort, but the legislation was worth pursuing. The board, with town staff, ran through the capacities of possible venues in Truro, Provincetown, and East Ham. Tangeman noted that if the DPW facility in its current design was built, it could accommodate over 1,000 voters. Whether to build that facility or not will be one of the topics for debate at the meeting on May 4th. 
14 residents of the historic White Dory condo complex in Provincetown were displaced on the day before Thanksgiving by a fire that left one unit a total loss and left smoke damage throughout the building. Fire Chief Michael Travato said high winds and salt spray caused a short circuit in an outdoor outlet on the building at 616 Commercial Street, likely smoldering for hours in the building's crawl space and basement before the call went out to the fire department just before noon. Provincetown's crew managed to put the fire out within 10 minutes, but firefighters providing mutual aid from Truro, Orleans, Harwich and Wellfleet continued working until 7 p.m. to extinguish the remaining hotspots, with some still on fire watch until 11 p.m. Residents have been told it could take months before the 100-year-old complex is ready for habitation again. According to Travado, one unit will require complete reconstruction, and the rest will require specialized work to get rid of the smell. Despite hardships for 14 Provincetown residents that may take months to resolve, the blow has been softened by neighbors springing into action. Assistant Town Manager Dan Riviello has put displaced residents in touch with the Provincetown Housing Authority and Homeless Prevention Council's Provincetown Community Support Liaison, Ann Wood. Provincetown citizens were alarmed last week when it appeared that plans were in place for a protest against drag to be held on Commercial Street on Friday, December 1st. A group calling itself the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property, which runs a campaign called America Needs Fatima, was responsible for printing a leaflet announcing the protest. As it turns out, the anti-drag protesters did not show up, but more than 100 drag-loving, colorfully-clad counter-protesters did. The day of the advertised protest was also World AIDS Day. At the post office cafe, where the rally was to take place, two drag shows were scheduled for that evening. The annual AIDS Memorial Candlelight Vigil was already planned for that afternoon. The call for an anti-drag protest shocked members of the community. Although the word had spread that the protesters were unlikely to show up, the counter-protesters agreed that they would assemble for mutual support, whether a rally against drag materialized or not. A planning session led to the idea of a non-violent queer joy block party, at which counter-protesters would join with those already marking World AIDS Day. Assistant Town Manager Dan Riviello said that because of the already planned vigil, the police planned to close a stretch of Commercial Street to traffic from 5 to 7.30 p.m. More than 100 people gathered on Commercial Street in the cold rain, wearing parkas, onesies, and drag. Many had come for the annual reading of the names of members of the community lost to AIDS. From there, they marched to the AIDS Support Group's drop-in center for food and speeches. Unitarian Universalist minister Kate Wilkinson offered a prayer at the vigil. For about an hour, those gathered in front of the post office cafe chanted, sang Christmas carols, and delivered rousing speeches about the power of community. Then, as the rain led up, the assembly marched to town hall with an eight-color striped flag that was so large it needed 16 people to carry it. After two years as producing artistic director for the Cape Cod Theatre Company, Harwich Junior Theatre, Kate Pazakis will resign at the end of the year. 
Pazakis has a long history with the theater. At age seven, she took to the stage and began learning from theater stalwarts Nina Schessler and Lisa Canto. Schessler, Pazakis's predecessor at the helm of the theater, planted the idea of Pazakis taking over before the pandemic. Originally, Pazakis said she didn't give the idea much thought as she was busy running her own theater company in Los Angeles and producing her own shows. However, once the pandemic hit and her company shut down, the idea of moving back to Cape Cod seemed much more appealing. After throwing her name in the hat to replace the retiring Shustler, she got the job. Upon receiving the position, Pazakis's goal was to update the way the organization was run. She tried to convert Shessler's wisdom from yellow pads to spreadsheets and computers, building new systems and making the operations of the theater more modern. However, once the pandemic ended, Pazakis said she started receiving requests to bring back her unauthorized music parody, or UMPO, series from theaters in Provincetown, Fire Island, Palm Springs, Puerto Vallarta, and more. With requests flooding in, she decided it was time to step back from her role on Cape Cod and pursue her own creative projects again. She gave her notice in July, giving the theater six months to find her replacement. Another Harwich Junior Theater alum, Jen Pina, will take over as producing artistic director on January 1st. A change in the leadership at the Cape Cod National Seashore has also taken place. Jennifer Flynn, whose career with the National Park Service began on Cape Cod more than 30 years ago, has landed back where she began. Her first official day as superintendent of the Cape Cod National Seashore was November 28th. She started work at the seashore in 1991, the summer before her junior year at Mount Holyoke College, and returned each year through 1996. During that period, she worked at the Race Point Ranger Station and drove the dunes as a law enforcement and oversands ranger. She was superintendent at Shenandoah National Park in Virginia from 2017 to 2020 and has had a long career specializing in emergency services. She has worked all around the country, including stints at Yosemite National Park and the Grand Canyon. Flynn's most recent job was in Washington, where she managed the NPS Emergency Services portfolio. Flynn's predecessor, Brian Karlstrom, left the superintendent job here in early October for a post in Denver. Leslie Reynolds was acting superintendent before Flynn's arrival. During Karlstrom's final few months on the job, the seashore was criticized for straying from its agreement under the Dune Shacks Historic District Preservation and Use Plan regarding how the shacks would be leased. Flynn says communication with the public and towns in her jurisdiction is important, but she declined to comment specifically on the Dune Shacks. Her immediate goals involve getting acquainted with the staff and getting up to speed on the issues. She said she was looking forward to meeting with town boards to find out what's important to the towns and how the seashore can support those objectives. A first meeting was set for December 5th with the Wellfleet Select Board. Flynn says she plans to reach out to Rich Delaney this week. Delaney chairs the newly reconstituted National Seashore Advisory Commission. Flynn says she expects the commission will be meeting again by early February. For Outer Cape News, this is Beth Dunn.
Wellfleet has welcomed five new officials to the town staff. A fairly amazing feat when recruiters are dealing with a shortage of candidates resulting from generational turnover and the high cost of housing. Adam Chatelaine, executive director and CEO of the Massachusetts Municipal Association, says long-serving finance, planning, and public works personnel are retiring and there aren't enough qualified people to take their places. The problem is being felt all across the Commonwealth, he said. In Wellfleet, an assistant town administrator, treasurer, health agent, conservation agent, building commissioner, and building health and conservation administrative assistant have either started new jobs or are finishing up employment, according to town administrator Rich Waldo. An accountant position is still open. On December 20th, Police Chief Michael Hurley will retire. The select board has offered the position to Deputy Chief Kevin LaRocco, contingent on successful contract negotiations. Wellfleet has had significant turnover in high-level positions over the last several years. It struggled through difficult software upgrades, accounting problems, and scathing state audits. Between 2014 and 2022, Wellfleet had five town administrators before Waldo was hired. Since 2018, the assistant town administrator position and the treasurer position each changed hands four times. The good news is that Silvio Gennaio began working as assistant town administrator in October. Waldo said Gennaio's years of municipal sector experience have already had a positive impact on the town. The treasurer's job was filled by Jared Aponte. Aponte will work one or two days a week in town and the rest remotely. Alex Williams, who filled in as interim treasurer, will stay on to assure a smooth transition. Rounding out the new hires in Wellfleet are Heath Martinez as health agent, Beth Piles as conservation agent, Angelo Salamone as building commissioner, and Gary Locke as building health and conservation agent administrative assistant. Waldo expects Locke's knowledge and experience to greatly improve the workflow between agents, including the building commissioner. The staffing shortage is also affecting business in Orleans. With the departure of two longtime department heads, town officials discussed the need for better succession planning in the coming years. Orleans Public Works Director Tom Daly and Finance Director Kathy Doan each left their positions at the end of November. Doan retired while Daly accepted a position elsewhere. Town manager Kim Newman told the select board the town wasn't prepared for the two departures and she needs to have options for replacing retiring or departing employees in the future. Having that flexibility, she said, will help ensure that the town is hiring the right people over the long term. Ron Trudeau, the DPW's operations manager, will serve as acting director until May, while a search is made for Daly's full-time successor. Trudeau himself was set to retire this month, 
but agreed to put off his retirement until the transition is complete. The town has already begun its search for a new operations manager to replace Trudeau. Hiring for a new finance director, however, will require more time. With Doan's retirement, town accountant Jennifer Mintz, who was hired in April, is the department's leader. Newman said she's working out a plan with the town of East Ham to have its assistant town manager, Rich Bienvenue, help train Mintz, who is new to working in municipal finance. And the recent departures are just the first of several vacancies the town has in the coming months. Newman said there are 16 positions that will need to be filled over the next couple of months. Select board member Kevin Galligan said the town has seen the benefits of proper succession planning in the past when the town promoted assistant clerk Kelly Darling to replace former town clerk Cynthia May. It then hired a new assistant as well as additional staff to help with elections. The changes in staffing come just months after Newman herself started as town manager in July. But she said now is the time to begin laying a foundation for town staffing well into the future. Wellfleet is going to have a hefty price to pay for dredging in 2024. The dredging itself will cost around $3.8 million, and there will be an additional $4.5 million penalty fee. The select board voted 3-2 to two to go ahead with the plan to pay $4.5 million to the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers for a 10-year permit to dredge the Area 2 mooring field. They decided not to pursue a mitigation plan that would offset that fee. The fee comes as a result of the town not doing maintenance dredging in that area of the harbor. Because Area 2 was last dredged in 1957, the Corps considers it new dredging rather than maintenance dredging. New dredging must take into consideration any damage done to the biodiversity in the harbor. The $4.5 million figure was determined by the Corps and a payment formula recommended by the state's Department of Fish and Game. In August, the select board rejected a mitigation plan proposed by the dredging task force that would have avoided the penalty fee in exchange for restoring a portion of Blackfish Creek. Opponents of that plan cited unknowns such as feasibility, timelines, monitoring and personnel costs, and lack of assurances from property owners surrounding Blackfish Creek. Residents of Wellfleet will need to vote on an article at Springtown Meeting and at a town election to authorize borrowing the money. Deadlines for grant applications, grant expenditures, bids and contract awards, and dredging windows will all come into play. A state grant with a one-to-one town match must be awarded to a contractor before June 30th. There is $2.9 million in the town's dredge account that will be used to match it. That money would pay for the $3.8 million dredge cost. Town manager Rich Waldo expects the town to pay $1.9 million and the state will pay the other $1.9 million to cover the cost of the $3.8 million dredge. 
The $4.5 million penalty fee is an additional cost. After more than three years, the team behind Orleans' first retail marijuana business got the news it had been waiting for. On November 9th, the state's Cannabis Control Commission gave final approval to Seaside Cannabis Co. to operate an adult-use recreational marijuana shop at 14 Lots Hollow Road, paving the way for it to become the first such licensed business to operate in Orleans. Seaside's Chief Operating Officer Spencer Knowles joins partners David Courier, A.J. Luke, Adam Higgins, and Tim McNamara in bringing Seaside to Orleans. Efforts to start the dispensary began in October of 2020, and Seaside was one of two businesses granted a license by the Select Board to sell recreational marijuana in June of 21. The business also has host community agreements with the town to sell and manufacture recreational marijuana products. On November 21st, Seaside passed its post-final license inspection from the state. Now, the focus is on hiring and training staff. According to their website, the store will be open for business on Saturday, December 16th. There were also years of red tape leading to the opening of the first recreational marijuana shop in Brewster. The Haven Center marked its opening November 18th with a party complete with a DJ and food truck. The building on Route 6A formerly housed a pet food and dog grooming store called For the Love of the Breed. CEO Chris Tolumas said the company had hoped to open the location by 2019, but obstacles got in the way, including a special town meeting that resulted in a recreational cannabis ban. The state attorney general's office ultimately overturned the ban after Haven Center appealed the decision. Brewster bylaws allow for only one recreational shop. Because of local concern about traffic, Haven Center also undertook extensive site work, such as a curb cut, to allow for more parking. Haven Center also owns a store in Provincetown at 308 Commercial Street that has been open for two years. In other business news from around our region, the dreadful rates of recycling plastic waste have inspired many people to look for ways to stop using plastic altogether. A 2022 report from Greenpeace said that less than 5% of plastic waste produced by U.S. households was successfully recycled. Figures like that led Megan Lazat to open The Glass Jar, Cape Cod's new refillable dry goods market, set to welcome the public in mid-January. Located in a plaza at the corner of Route 6A and 134 in Dennis, the store previously housed a locksmith. Lazat has a background in veterinary medicine and worked for almost 15 years at Veterinary Associates of Cape Cod in Yarmouth. Shelves at the Dennis Market will be stocked with staples such as flour, oats, rice, and pasta, and will highlight local names like Beanstalk Coffee. Customers can bring their own container, buy a jar at the store, or grab a free paper bag before filling it with product. 
Green Road Refill in Brewster, which provides home goods in a similar model, will also hold a pop-up at the store so people can refill products like laundry detergent, shampoo, and conditioner. In addition to offering bulk goods, Lizotte said she'll offset her electricity bill by using credits she's accumulated from the solar panels on her house. The Cape Cod Commercial Fishermen's Alliance has received a $500,000 state earmark to support programs aimed at sustainability, modernizing fishing resources, and encouraging young people to enter the industry. State Representative Dylan Fernandez presented the funds to Alliance officials at the Chatham Fish Pier on Wednesday. Fernandez, who represents Nantucket, Martha's Vineyard, and sections of Falmouth, added the line item in this year's state budget at the urging of the Alliance. The funds will cover staff time for policy and regulatory monitoring, as well as engaging a working group to modernize fishing resource surveys, collaboration with scientists to modernize data collection, and collaborate with agencies such as the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, the State Division of Marine Fisheries, and the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration on a variety of research projects. With the funds, Alliance staff will also provide free online training for new and prospective commercial fishermen, continue to host Meet the Fleet events, and hire retired fishermen as peer hosts at the Fish Pier. Almost 2,000 commercial fishermen live and work on the Cape, generating more than $73 million of landings annually. The industry also supports thousands of other wholesale, retail, and blue economy jobs. What was the very first thing you did when you got out of bed this morning? Well, okay, the second thing. If you're anything like me, you made yourself a cup of strong coffee. I think it's a miracle that I can actually make coffee before I drink a cup of coffee. But for me, coffee is something of a miracle. Sure, it's been linked to the prevention of Alzheimer's and at wards or Parkinson's and heart failure. We know all about those studies. But for me, one cup of coffee is better than two Tylenol because it eases all those aches and pains I wake up with. Forgive me, but... Coffee is just about all I can think about today because I'm having a medical procedure and I'm not allowed to have any. I'm tired, I'm grumpy, and I can't think straight. I've already put my underwear on backwards and I'm feeling so all-around contrary that I just might leave them that way. Because coffee affects the brain in a similar way as amphetamines, I've often wondered why our puritanical government never banned it, like Muslims did in the Middle Ages because it stimulated radical thinking, like the Catholic Church did because they considered coffee a satanic drink. In the Ottoman Empire, anyone found purchasing or selling coffee 
got beaten on their first offense, if caught a second time, they'd be sewn into a leather bag and tossed into the Bosporus Strait. The exact origin of coffee is a mystery, but historians believe it was discovered in Ethiopia around the 15th century. According to legend, a goat herder named Kaldi noticed his goats were particularly energetic after eating a certain berry. Upon tasting the berry himself, Kaldi found that he felt much more awake and alert. He told the abbot of his local monastery about it, and the abbot came up with the idea of drying and boiling the berries to make a beverage, and soon Arab Sufi monks were using it to stay awake and reach divine consciousness during midnight prayers. In the Middle East, alcohol was forbidden, but men started to gather in cafes that served coffee to listen to music, play chess, and share the news. Coffee became known as the wine of Araby. When coffee arrived in England in the 17th century, it totally changed British culture. In a society that was intensely hierarchical, the idea that you could socialize with the upper classes was radical. Communal tables were covered with newspapers and pamphlets. Coffee drinkers discussed ideas and wrote the news. In Oxford, local coffee houses were known as penny universities because for the cost of one cup of coffee, you could hang out with intellectuals such as Isaac Newton, who once dissected a dolphin on a communal table. Women, as you might expect, were excluded from coffee houses and protested vehemently. In the widely circulated Women's Petition Against Coffee, Wives argued that coffee made men neglect their families and spend all their money and time drinking what they called that black, thick, nasty, bitter, stinking, nauseous puddle water. In the American colonies after the Boston Tea Party, coffee was known as the patriotic drink, and the Green Dragon Tavern in the North End was nicknamed the Headquarters of the Revolution for housing secret meetings of the Sons of Liberty. As the Industrial Revolution gained steam, workers sometimes had to choose coffee over food because it enabled them to work day and night. After an inventor named George Constant Lewis Washington developed a way to mass-produce instant coffee, it was included in ration kits during World War I. Soldiers fired up their little oil heaters in foxholes to make what they called a cup of George, a name that some people claim was slightly altered by troops in World War II who called it a cup of Joe. Obsessed and depressed and lacking finesse, I'm obviously suffering coffee withdrawal. But I choose to look at the bright side and see myself as just one more workaholic intellectual speed freak standing cup in hand in wait of a bright new dawn, which better begin with a cup of coffee. I'm Ira Wood, and that's my opinion.
And that does it for this week's edition of Outer Cape News. Thanks go to the Provincetown Independent, the Cape Cod Chronicle, and the Cape Cod Times. Thanks also to Beth Dunn and Ira Wood for their contributions to the program. And thanks to Henry and Jane Fisher and Jacob Greenberg for being sustaining members of Outer Cape News. And now stay tuned for Friday Afternoon Jazz. It's Stirred Not Shaken with Hank and Andy on listener-supported Outermost Community Radio, WOMR.